Lifestyle of Prayer. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 8. Lord, we do thank you once again just for the entrance of your word. Your word is powerful. It is almighty. You said that your word will endure forever. You said that heaven and earth would pass away, but your word would never pass away. It's eternal. So, Father, we thank you for these scriptures. We thank you for the word of God as we look into this passage now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is hour number eight and the final hour in Lifestyle of Prayer. We're going to teach lesson number seven as I just shared before we started taping, that we're not going to do Lesson 8 on this because of time, as we'll cover Lesson 8 when we teach on the Holy Spirit. This is called Standing in the Gap. Uh, we've heard that phrase. I'm sure all of you have heard about it. Ezekiel 22:30 on the outline. In fact, let's just turn there and read it in context. Ezekiel chapter 22. All through Scripture, the idea of an intercessor is something that uh, you have to build your faith about. Because all, what I really want to speak to tonight, as far as this session, is I, I want your faith to be built up in this. And again, I'm trusting that you won't just turn off and go to sleep because you've had so many samosas. <laughs> uh, one man, one woman, just one man or one woman who knows their covenant in the Bible changes nations. You hear me? Now, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is no respecter of persons. I say it over and over again, but I want you to hear it. If he did it once, he can do it again. But somebody has to know the covenant. And the covenant is what? It's the Word of God. The covenant is God's Word. But we're going to look now at these passages that speak about standing in gaps and building up hedges one heavy so that we can just look at what they actually say in context. And of course, in context, when the Lord speaks these things about looking for someone, it's because of the horrible state of, the, of His people, or because of the sins and the iniquities and the idolatry and how they've just gone away from the covenant. They've gone away from God's agreements. And, and the last thing God wants to do is to bring, you know, is for, for hell to break loose in His people. And so God always looks for a way so that that does not have to happen. But like I said, we're going to look at some things tonight, and, I, and they're quite eye-opening in that hopefully you'll begin to understand from a different angle when God says He's going to do something, what he's, why He's saying He's going to do it, why He pronounces judgment, why He pronounces judgment, because He's waiting after He pronounces judgment to see if somebody will intervene as opposed to just going around and telling everybody God's about to judge. Did you hear what I just said? When God announces that He's about to judge something, in the Old Testament, in the scriptural pattern, God was looking for somebody that would step in front of Him and say, Lord, remember your covenant. But today, when we hear prophets prophesy about how judgment is coming, rather than get before God and remind him of his covenant. They just go around telling everybody, you better get ready. God's going to judge. God's going to judge. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. You foul sinner, he's definitely coming to you. Judgment's coming. They miss the biblical pattern of why God begins to declare through his prophets that judgment is coming. Ezekiel chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 23. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, speaking of Israel, the land, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of Israel's false prophets in the midst of her. Like a roaring lion tearing the prey, they have devoured human lives. They have taken in their greed treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Now, this verse 26 just blows my mind in the Amplified Bible. Listen to this. Her priests have done violence to my law 
and have profaned my holy things. Listen to this next phrase. They have made no distinction between the sacred and the secular. Neither have they taught people the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they've hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned amongst them. I got to tell you, like I said, I'm not preaching that, but that is a picture of a lot of ministers today that are not really, really declaring and defining for people the difference between the sacred and the secular and the clean and the unclean. In other words, the priest, judgment will begin, like I say for sure, the house of God, it begins with us. That's why James 3, 1 says, be not many teachers, knowing this, that we shall receive the greater condemnation. When you stand up in the name of the Lord and declare things and you speak things as a shepherd to people, it is a weighty, weighty thing. Do you hear me? It is not something that you take upon yourself lightly. I always shiver sometimes when I think about the people that just say they long to do that. I know what they mean, but it's an honorable, honorable thing. It's the highest calling there is to stand as a representative of the Lord. But with it, uh, comes great responsibility if you know the scripture and if you know the verses or know the, know the Bible at all. It's, it's, you know, it behooves you that you have to walk in so much. You just don't, other people can get away with things. You can't. You hear me? You just can't. You, it's a price. You pay a price, a real price. You, you don't do what everybody else does. You can't do some things that other people can do. Doesn't even mean it's wrong for them, but it's wrong for you. That is, if you want something called the anointing. But like I say over and over again, churches today are full of what I call soulish ministers who preach soulish messages to soulish congregations. And it's not that that's entirely wrong because your souls need ministry. But God's looking for some ministers of the, of the things of the spirit, the sacred things, the holy things, the, the holy of holies experience not just the outer court and not just the inner court, but the Holy of Holies. And because men don't pay the price, most pastors, let me tell you, most preachers don't like prayer movements or prayer ministries because it uncovers what they have a little of, and that's a little prayer life. Most, I've worked with too many pastors, and bless their hearts, they don't mean it to be that way. But what happens is everything else gets in the way, and rather than really understanding like the book of Acts says, as for us, we will give ourselves to prayer. That's what it says. And to the study of the word. It's not meat for us to wait on tables. We're not supposed to wait on the tables and do the menial things of the tabernacle. What we are supposed to do is give ourselves to, and the first thing that's listed is prayer and the study of the word. But prayer, like I say, has become in the body of Christ today an attachment. Leadership teams get together and they get around tables and they have a committee meeting and they come up with ideas and they decide what maybe is the best thing to do to produce results and to cause people to come to the church. And then at the end of the meeting, they say, well, okay, now let's pray over it. And prayer becomes an attachment. And often I'll share with them, I think I've shared with you this before, when I speak with some pastors at times, I always ask them that question. I say, are, are you trying to attract people? How much money is on your budget line? What are you doing to attract people? And they have all these things about church growth programs. And, and I said, do you really understand that the biblical precedent is in Exodus when Moses said, if your presence doesn't go with me, I'm not going anywhere. And I said, ask yourself this question. Are you putting, where's most of your energy going in, in trying to attract people? Or God? And they get about that quiet. <laughs> because if you really learn to do what it takes to attract God, you won't have to worry much about people. And so this is a real, it's a real problem. Bless their hearts. But what, this is why if you have a good church, if you've got a good pastor, what you need to do is make sure that man has all the time he needs to be before God. He doesn't need to spend all his time counseling. He doesn't need to spend all... There's other people that can do all that stuff. He doesn't need to spend all his time doing that. Who would you rather stand in front of on a Sunday? Somebody that's been in, 
that's been counseling all week and, you know, visiting little old ladies all week long, which are all great things, or somebody that's been before the Lord. I mean, who do you want? Really, think about it. And what the scripture teaches is, is that you have no right to go before the people in behalf of God until first you've gone before God in behalf of the people. Okay? Those are the kind of things that, that, that this book teaches. This is why prayer becomes so much more than just something you teach. It's, an under, it's, it's the source of what this stuff's all about. Otherwise, you'll just be preaching messages. And a lot of people are incredible communicators. See, there's a lot of people who have great communication giftings. They know how to put an outline together. They know how to put words together. But there's all the difference in the world between words that are put together well and words that are anointed from heaven. When you listen to a man or a woman that's anointed, I, I, I've experienced this so many times, a guy can go for two hours and it feels like you've been there for 10 minutes. You know what I mean? And yet you can listen to incredible speakers and you, think you can listen to them for 20 minutes and you feel like you've been there for three hours sometimes. Or, or your soul might get really excited and blessed, but you still go away feeling different. Your, your spirit's not been fulfilled. And boy, you, you learn to discern the difference, see, over a period of time. Because if you do actually taste of the Lord, you'll know what it tastes like. And so you'll know what it isn't. An old black preacher friend of mine in the States years ago said something I've never forgotten. An old man, he said, he was asked once, he said, what, can you tell me what the anointing is? And he looked at this, these, this group of people and he said, well, he said, I can't tell you what the anointing is, but I can sure tell you what it ain't. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. He said, I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you what it ain't. <laughs> and that's kind of the way it is. You, you know when it isn't. You know, it may be all smooth and looking good and what have you, but there's just, once you, and it's not, nobody's, and you're, it's not that you're trying to pat yourself in the back or anything else, because we're all in this together, we're all learning, and, and you, you'll become your own worst enemy, if you know what I mean, because once you do taste that, it's, I've got up in pulpits before, and like my, a guy, a friend of mine named Jack Johnson said years ago, he said, have you ever got up in the pulpit, and he said, you knew you were there, but you felt like God was somewhere in Barbados? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I'm there, but that's, that's it. God's not, you know. It's the most horrible feeling on the planet Earth. Now, he said, my priests my priest have profaned my word. He said, they're not representing me well. They're not differentiating between the sacred and the secular. Nor teaching my people the difference between the clean and the unclean. They're afraid of offending people. Afraid to tell them the truth, that young couple that lives together, instead of saying, well, they're just a young couple that have problems, they're supposed to look at them with a smile and say, no, you're fornicators. You have to tell it like it is because God's anointing is on his word. God is, God's anointing is on truth. When, and the Bible says we're to command men everywhere. To, I, he, Paul to Timothy said, you're to command repentance. What we do is we invite people. God did not give Moses the Ten Invitations. He gave him the Ten Commandments. When you command people to repentance, it sets a whole other atmosphere in the air. Because then they have two choices. They either repent or they rebel. But as long as you just deal with people and you say, well, they've got a problem. Well, a problem you can find a solution or counseling for. Big difference. Anyhow, let me get back to this or I'll start preaching. Verse 27, the Lord said, Her princes in the midst of her are like wolves, rending and devouring the prey, shedding blood and destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets, verse 20, have daubed them over with whitewash, seeing false visions and divining lies to them, saying, Thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have used oppression and extortion and have committed robbery. Yes, they have wronged and vexed the poor and needy. Yes, they've oppressed the stranger and the temporary resident wrongfully. Now, all of those horrible things, but now, listen. What, listen to what this speaks to when God says, verse 30. He said, and I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. 
Now, again, see, we've heard this scripture so much, like I said, people just turn off. I sought for a man, and it is singular, someone who would stand before me, who would stand in the gap. Let's read it again. I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. So what is the implication? If he would have found somebody, he would not have had to destroy the land. Do you remember scripture says God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked? Right? Much less the righteous. God's not up there looking for an opportunity to smite people. That's what stupid people teach. God's, God is love. God's looking for a way to communicate life to people. And so he gives them instructions that they might have life. He said in verse 31, Therefore have I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I repaid by bringing it upon their own head, says the Lord God. But he's looking for somebody to stand in the gap before me. Now, look up at me for a moment. Look up at me. I'm looking for somebody to stand in the gap before me in behalf of the land. You've got to picture a gap. Here's God. Here's this gap between God and what he's going to have to do because of their breaking covenant. Destruction, judgment's coming. He's looking for somebody to stand before him in the midst of the judgment, in the midst of that which is about to come for the land. Now, oh, there's too many things I got to go here with too, but a gap. Think about a gap for a moment. Have you ever seen... The old, anybody remember the old cartoons with the Roadrunner? The old, do you remember this Roadrunner, this goofy, wily coyote and the Roadrunner? Probably, probably not our Polish friends. Okay. Well, have you ever seen this, have you ever seen a cartoon where like there's a big dam of water and like a little guy's got his thumb in it and he's trying to hold back a dam when this dam, the water starts to break through and suddenly just... <laughs> And like it hits this guy in the face and his hair is flying a million. <laughs> I mean, a gap is not a comfortable place. <laughs> I said a gap is not a comfortable place. It's, it's a gap is some, an intercessor is somebody, is somebody who makes a decision to stand in a place where very few don't want to stand. The truth about what real intercession is, is that it's not very glamorous. It's very frightening. Because you're up close and personal with judgment and you're up close and personal with a God who can actually set judgment aside. Remember Ephesians 6 last hour? Firm foot of stability. To stand. All these things about standing in the midst of situations. But God's word says he's looking for somebody that will stand in the gap. And it's singular here. One person who, who's, who will stand before the gap that I might not destroy it. Now, now let's go back to, well, well, let me read Jeremiah. Well, let me just read from the outline because I want to get to Numbers and these other verses down here. I sought for a man among them that should, not, that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. So again, let me ask you, does God want to destroy it? Does he? Does he want judgment to come? No. Okay. God is looking for those who will stand in the gap and build up the hedge around his work. An intercessor is this one who will do this work. The entire idiom, the word intercessor, is typified by the Hebrew root word, which is paras, P-A-R-A-S. It's used 50 times in the Old Testament, often in a military or disaster situation. This is right out of a lexicon. Paras does not mean simply, quote, to punch a hole through, but to level and to raise. In other words, to bring something down to the ground. Another important part of the word is to increase to break over by plenty, also to command. You see then a double meaning. While an intercessor is at work, he's not only building up, but tearing down. That's Jeremiah 1.10, where it says, See, I have this day appointed you to the oversight of the nations and other kingdoms to root out and pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Everything God does, he does in an order. You do know that God is the God of order. God's not the author of confusion. So when you see words, even in the scripture, that's what I mean. It becomes important to see even the order that words flow in. 
because it's in, everything is like he's the chief apostle. There's, God's word is in apostolic order. Here in simplicity is a formula for us. Before you can build and plant, you must root out, pull down, destroy, and overthrow. Now look at me. Some of you have been in churches where you've been taught rubbish. You hear me? And so when you come to hear the truth, and don't, please don't mishear me. I'm not, you hope you know my spirit a little bit by now. I'm not trying to elevate myself. I'm trying to elevate the word of God. Often before we can get you to truth, we have to go down first. We have to get the, you know, it's like gardens. You don't plant a garden in a bed full of weeds. You've got to get the weeds up first. Some, a lot, many, most, unfortunately today, of the body of Christ has so much stuff inside of them from wrong teaching, bad teaching. They have, remember, believed lies. They've been taught lies for so long, lies have become truth to them. You hear me? They've been taught lies for so long, it's become truth to them. Second Thessalonians 2, that you might believe a lie and be damned for them. That we have to root up, tear down, pluck out, all that junk, so that we can build up and plant so that you can have a harvest. Well, when you tear down, sometimes it's not all that, it's, there's a lot of dust flying around. There's a lot of junk that flies around when you, have to, when you have to go to work on somebody's spirit to get some of the junk out of there. Because again, especially when people are older, most of you in here are younger, but when you've got guys that are 60 years old and they've been in church for 45 years, it's offensive to their minds to think that for 40 years they may have believed not as correctly as they could have. The very first year of the Bible school, when I was principal of Bible school, I had a lady there who, I forget how, what, how old she was, but when I got done with this one course, she stormed up. She'd been real quiet the whole length of the whole course for like two months. She came up to me, and I've had this happen not once, but may, I can, I, without exaggeration, more times than I can count on my two hands. But she came up, and she was storming up. I mean, she had this anger on her face, and I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, she was, she was mad, and she says, I've been in church 45 years. Why haven't I heard this stuff before? She said, I've been faithfully going to church for 45 years, and I've never in 45 years of going to church heard these teachings. I want to know why. And how do you answer that? You can't answer that other than the fact that, you see, the Bible speaks about the fact that there were no teaching priests. Remember that verse? There were no teaching priests. Again, this is what Dr. Cole said. What we have today are churches full of people that are being taught how to hear sermons as opposed to being taught how to study the Bible. So they go, they're a consumer mentality. You go to church to get something from them, but you're not taught how to live a life for Christ for yourself. Now, there are some out there, of course, but you know what I'm trying to say. I'm speaking in general terms. This is not a curse on everybody, but... But it's true, and it is true. Most of the body of Christ is totally ignorant of really what the Word of God has to say, or, uh, or else they're in, they get into seminary and they get into theology to the point that they get so confused that they don't realize that there's one commentary that's better than any, and that's the book itself. And again, like I said, there's these cardinal little simple rules of Bible interpretation. You always interpret Scripture in context with other Scripture. The first law of interpretation is you always interpret Scripture with the character of God in mind. It means you need to know who He is, and God is love. So when you read something like an Amos when it says, I am God, I kill, I create evil, you should blink a couple times and go, there's something there that I don't understand. Because God is love, and Romans 13.10 says, love never hurts anyone. So when it says, I create evil, I kill, and I make alive, I got to have a big question mark go off in my spirit and say there's something else there I don't know. We had to go through, we were in a good, I was in a, I was blessed to be in a place where we were taken through every single scripture in the Old Covenant, in the Old, Old Testament that showed, that said anything like that where it showed like, or appeared that God caused evil. And we were taught and shown in the Greek and in the, excuse me, in the Aramaic and in the Hebrew and 
They showed us the new, new study, new things that have been, I mean, old documents that have been found and how they had better understanding of the languages and how these things have been translated in the causative when really they were all in the permissive sense. And that's not for now, but it's a very important issue. God's not the author of evil ever. There's no evil in him to give up to anybody, okay? He's the author of goodness. So here in simplicity is a formula for us. Before you can build and plant, you must root out, pull down, destroy, and overthrow. Now, when you begin to pray for people and intercede for people, God is light. God is love. God's word is light. You are interjecting light. When you start praying for people, you begin to push light into their situation. Now, if people, now the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of people from seeing, from being able to see the glorious light of the gospel, right? One of the things I learned in intercession all those years ago is when you begin to faithfully pray the word of God over people, well, you're praying light. Let me ask you a question. If you're in a pitch black room and a light suddenly turns on, do you turn toward it or away from it? You go like this. Because your eyes hurt, because the light, you have to adjust to the light. You hear me? When you first start praying for people that are really in darkness, their first reaction is normally confusion and they'll turn away from it. And I, I don't know why I'm getting off on that right now, but one of the first, you know, <laughs> you have to learn when you really start interceding for people that often things look worse, not better, because they begin to turn from the light. And then you, this is why you have to keep at it, though. You have to keep injecting light because what happens with a lot of people is when you start interceding for somebody is that, is that you stop praying because it looks like it's getting worse. Oh, well, my prayers aren't working. No, they're working. The people are more confused than ever. <laughs> uh, they seem to be going backwards. Just keep interjecting the light. Keep bringing the light. And all I know is when you begin to see these things in Scripture, see, it makes... You begin to, you, you have greater faith. You understand what's going on in the realm of the spirit. You just know that's the process of things. Everything God does, he does by way of a process. This is how, this is what's happening. Remember Mark 4, Jesus said, when the word comes, Satan comes immediately. You have to understand that's just part of the package. Satan comes immediately. He'll come and he'll try to make it worse. But we are in the business of building up. Jesus told us that before you can bind something on earth, it must be bound in the heavenlies. Again, we must understand the awesome authority that we have through our covenant with God. This is something that we must study time after time so that it will be firmly implanted into our spirits. Now listen, God will do nothing. This is from Amos. I don't have the scripture down there. And Amos says, God will do nothing. Say nothing. God will do nothing without first revealing it to his servants, the prophets, is what it says in Amos. Okay? And then I put down here, and then, but again, Sam, I'm, I'm, what's, the, what's the job of the Old Testament prophet? The Old Testament prophet was a seer in many cases, but when God spoke to the prophet, what did the prophet do? Who did the, what did he do? He spoke what God said, Right? God speaks to a prophet, go tell my people, so they go tell the people. Now think about it. Just think about it. Think about it. Why doesn't God just get a huge loudspeaker over a city and just, here I am, do this? Why doesn't he do that? Why does he always find a man or a woman and speak to them? and then have them speak. There's so much here. Again, because remember, Satan is the God of this world. There's a lot of areas we could go and touch on here. Man's natural birth into the earth is what gives him authority in the earth. A body was prepared for Jesus so that he, and he came by natural birth through the womb of a woman so that he had the legal right to function in this earth as a child of God. God won't do anything without first revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And just whether you understand all that, 
right now is not the issue. Just believe it's the truth because it is the truth. He has to find somebody. He has to find somebody to release on earth what he's wanting to release in heaven or what he's released in heaven, the binding and loosing thing. He's got to find somebody here to release, to allow on earth what he's allowing in heaven. He's got to find somebody here to bind up what he's bound up there. You and God are co-laborers together. People all the time say God can do anything. No, he can't. God can't lie. And in God's providence, see, you got to take it up with him. God has chosen to use mankind and to find people that will obey him. But he always does this. Now, like, just stick with me. Like I said, this is why I didn't want to overgo this, this particular lesson because it's important. God will do nothing without first revealing it to his servants. They are then held responsible for the revelation given them from heaven. And it's going to be their obedience that's going to cause a change in the earth. Now, I want you to turn to Numbers 14. And we're going to look at some of these dealings of Moses and God. And I mean... You have to see the patterns. Remember, I say it all the time. I was taught it by Dr. Cole. Everything God does, he does according to a pattern and based upon a principle. And I want you to see the patterns. And I mean, I have in my own notes at home, I've got, I've got you know, notes that thick of, of the scriptures that, where you see this all through the Bible. But in Numbers 14, let's look at something here. Now, uh, verse 1, and you know, this is just after all the scouts go out and they, you know, the 12 spies go into Canaan land and they come back, remember, and 10 of them have an evil report, right? And only two of them have a good report. The last verse in number 13, the evil report is, Oh, we saw the Nephilim or the giants, the son of Anak who came for the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Verse, you know, this is when they brought this report. In chapter 14, verse 1, it says, And all the congregation cried with a loud voice, and they wept all that night. And all the Israelites grumbled, and they deplored their situation, and they began to accuse Moses and Aaron, to whom the whole congregation said, Would that we had died in Egypt, or that we died in this wilderness. Now remember, these are the same people that were brought out by all these ten plagues and these miracles, Remember? They crossed the Red Sea. They've had pillars of fire by night and clouds by day. All kinds of the miraculous. Verse 3, Why does the Lord bring us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and little ones will be a prey. Is it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us choose a captain and return to Egypt. The first thing people do when they're frustrated is look for another leader. Now watch Moses and Aaron, verse 5. This is what good leadership does, and this is Moses is the type of Christ, but this is what I want in your spirit. When people come at you with all their murmuring and complaining, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the Israelites, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among the scouts who had searched the land, rent their clothes, and they said to all the company of the Israelites, Hey, the land through which we pass the scouts is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land flown with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, neither fear the people of the land. I love this statement, for they are bread for us. It means we'll eat them up. Now this is something, you see all the typology here. What are the giants in your land? You hear me? What are the giants in your land that look so big to you that if you talk about how big they look to you, you begin to see yourself in the shadow of them rather than seeing them in the shadow of your God? Who's bigger? Who's bigger? Who's bigger? See, you have to make the decision. You can say it in the classroom, but see, you get to make the decision. But two men, only two. See, the majority is always wrong in the Bible, like I've told you over and over again. Two people had another, had a good report. And two people said, it, they're bread for us. We saw the giants. We saw everything you saw, but the Lord is with us. So the issue isn't how big the giants are. The issue is who's with us. So you have to ask, who is with you in these things? You see, the living voice, remember last hour? This stuff has to become a living voice. They said, 
Verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord, neither fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense, their, listen to this statement, their defense and the shadow or protection is removed from over them. But the Lord is with us, fear them not. Now, why is the shadow of protection removed from them? Because the Lord said, go, this is your land, possess it. So in their mind, they're saying, wait a second. If the Lord's told me to go possess this, if this is a promise, the Lord's told me to possess it, that means its power's already been broken. See, this is the thing. I'm not teaching this either, but in this, when God first speaks to them, about going into the land. He says, I have subdued the land before you that you might possess it. The word subdue means to break the power of control over. But it wasn't possessed yet. But God said, I've done my part. And what was his part? Well, because he's God, he said, it's yours. Did you hear me? Please don't miss the simplicity of this. He said, it's yours because I've promised it. Therefore, the power of the enemy has been broken because I've told you it's available to you. It's my promise to you. He subdued it. He broke the power of control over it. But now you must go possess it. So you get to go into a land where there are giants. You hear me? You get to walk amongst giants. Giants are scary. What are your giants? Giants are scary. But if God's with you, their defense and the shadow of their protection is gone from them. If you know it's a promise, if you know God said it, if it's a living voice to you, you just go knowing that you are well able because God is with you. Right? Now watch. Only do, verse, it says again, verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord. Joshua and Caleb were trying to get him to stop. Neither fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense and the shadow of protection is removed from over them. But the Lord is with us, fear them not. Verse 10, and all the congregation said, glory to God, you're right, Joshua. You're right, Caleb, let's do it. Is that what it says? No. <laughs> no. But the congregation, you see, the mass of people, oh, God, help me. Please hear me. When we preach these things, ministries that don't like this stuff accuse us of being extreme. I am extreme. I plan on remaining extreme. Because I've chosen to side with the Word of God. And I'm not saying that pompously. But you have to see the patterns. The mass of people do not want to hear that it's okay to go up against these giants. The mass of the people say, don't do it, you'll die. Don't do it, you'll get defeated. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And one of the main reasons they don't want you to do it is because if you do it, it makes them look bad. All I know is this, the Bible is God's final authority. It's final evidence. You have to make your own decision when you study this stuff. Is this God's will? Has he changed? Is he the same yesterday, today, and forever? This whole Old Testament, remember, is the New Testament concealed. This whole Old Testament is full of types and shadows that point to what is ours today. It points to the preface that God is with us. Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? 1 John 4, 1 John 5, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us. But watch. But all the congregation said, stone Joshua and Caleb with stones. Kill them. We don't want to hear that stuff. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting before all the Israelites. Now watch what the Lord says. Now here's where we get to prayer, standing in the gap. What is really a trip, and I want you to hear about when God pronounces judgment, what he's really hoping for. The Lord says to Moses, watch verse 11. The Lord says to Moses, how long will this people provoke and spurn and despise me? 
And how long will it be before they believe me, trusting in and relying and clinging to me for all the signs which I have performed among them? Now watch. Here's the judgment. I will smite. Now watch what he's doing. Who's he speaking to? He's talking to Moses. I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. <laughs> I always laugh at that because I always picture, what would you have done if you was Moses? That's not a bad deal. <laughs> you might just stop and think for a minute, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm going to get rid of all them, and I'm going to make of you. I want to tell you something. I talked to you about, oh, I haven't talked to you about that yet, but I mentioned another thing. God's, you've got to learn to see the light in Jesus' eyes. Jesus Christ, when he walked with people, you've got to see the things he says to his disciples and why he says things to bring them to a point of decision. If you can picture, like, though you can't see God, if you could see God speaking to Moses saying, I'm going to smite them and disinherit them, Moses, and I'm going to make of you a greater nation. That's a test. That's a test right there of Moses. Another test of Moses. But Moses, this is why Moses was so incredible, said to the Lord, watch what he says. Then the Egyptians will hear of it. Who is Egypt a type of? Egypt is a type of the world. Moses is a type of Christ. Israel is a type of the church, remember. Now watch. Moses said, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land they have heard that you, Lord, are in the midst of this people of Israel, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, that your cloud stands over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill all this people as one man, then the nations that have heard your fame will say, because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to give to them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. Now, watch verse 17 and 18 and 19. Remember Isaiah? Declare thou unto me, put me in remembrance, plead your case before me that you might be justified. Do you remember that? Watch. What does Moses do? Verse 17, and now I pray you, let the power of my Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is long-suffering, slow to anger, abundant in mercy and loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the third and the fourth generation. Now, in the, King, in the Amplified, it shows right there, he's quoting Exodus 34, 6 and 7 when God spoke to him, right? He's bringing before God, he's standing in the gap before God in behalf of his people, and what is he declaring to God? What God's already declared to them. Homo legeo, confession, speaking the same thing as, Lord, as you have promised. So let me ask you a question. Do you think God wants to really smite all these people? No. No, he doesn't. It's not in him to. Now watch, because I want to get to one other passage real quick before I have to stop. Moses said, the Lord, and, and now watch, verse 19, Moses says, who's he talking to? Who's Moses talking to? God. Pardon, I pray you, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your mercy and loving kindness, just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. Now what's verse 20 say? What's it say? I have pardoned, who's speaking here? Who? The Lord is. God is. What's he say? I have pardoned according to your word. See, God's word had become Moses' word. And Moses stood before God proclaiming his own words, God's words, back to God, pleading his case. And God, now here, remember what we said in the beginning, people say, well, God never changes his mind. Now see, it's, this is what I mean. You've got to look at this clearly. God hasn't changed his mind because it's not, God doesn't want to destroy anybody. But he's got to find somebody that will stand before him that knows the covenant 
and says, God, you said this. Pardon according to this. Don't you understand what I'm trying to say? This is what you and I are called to do today. When you're looking at the face of destruction, you say, Lord, you've said this. You promised this. So do this like you promised. And you've got to see God going, not like, who do you think you are? God's going, thank you. I find somebody that believes me, that understands that I don't want to do this, but I'm going to have to do this until somebody gets in my face that knows what my will really is. Now, real quickly, turn to Exodus 32. Verse 1, I'll just read verse 1 to give, put you in the background. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, in other words, when Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments, remember? They gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what's become of him. They go through all this stuff. Now, verse 9, jump to verse 9. Well, verse 7, The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are our gods, O Israel. Now watch, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may destroy them, but I will make of you a great nation." Now, this is the same thing that happened in Numbers, but it is a different occasion. Do you hear me? But this is, the, like I said, you see this over and over again. But Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath blaze hot against your people whom you brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say for evil he brought them forth to slay them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and change your mind concerning this evil against your people. Now watch, here it is. Earnestly remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. And you said to them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I've spoken of will I give to your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Now, do you hear what I'm saying again? What's Moses doing? Is Moses not bringing back to God what God has already said? Yeah. Is he? Yeah. What's the next verse? Then the Lord turned. Then the Lord turned from the evil which he had thought to do to his people. Now, again, you've got to start to read between the lines. God doesn't want to do this. Now, we're going to stay in the same chapter for a minute because I've only got about two minutes. Now, watch this. So God comes down here in verse 25, it says in verse 25, And when Moses saw that the people were unruly and unrestrained, for Aaron had let them get out of control, so that they were a derision and object of shame among their enemies, Moses then stood, verse 26, in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, let him come to me. And all the Levites, the priestly tribe, gathered together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Every man put his sword on his side to go in and out from gate to gate throughout the lamp at the camp and slay every man his brother every man his companion. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and they fell on the people, they fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. A horrible thing. Verse 29, 29, Then Moses said to the Levites, By your obedience to God's command, you have consecrated yourselves today as priests of the Lord, each man at the cost of being against his own son and brother, and so on. Now watch. Verse 30, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have sinned a great sin and have made themselves gods of gold. Now watch this statement from Moses. This is the heart of a true intercessor. And this is mind-blowing to really understand what he really says. Because he said it means just what it says. It says, Oh, look, these people have sinned a great sin and have made themselves gods of gold. Verse 32, Yet now, now Moses is talking to God. He says, Yet now, if you, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray you, out of your book which you have written. Can you imagine? This is called laying down your life for the sake of others who do not deserve it. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot him out, not you out of my book. 
and now go lead the people to the place of which I've told you. Behold, my angels will go before you. And like I said, I got two minutes, but look on the outline. You can read similarly in Deuteronomy 9. In number 16, if we were to go there, this incredible story of what prayer does when, again, the people are, are murmuring and complaining and a great plague comes amongst them and they're being killed by this plague. And Moses is instructed by the Lord to put, scent, put a fire in the censer and censer and incense on fire is always in the Old Testament a type of prayer. He says, take a censer, put fire upon it and run out into the midst of the congregation. Run out in the midst of the congregation. And it says that he ran out in them. And here's in this incredible verse 48, number 1648. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. See, when he got out there, it stopped. What a powerful scripture. The judgment of God was again stayed by intercession. The censer with fire from off the altar is a type of prayer. We must see from this vivid scriptural account what takes place as we take our place in the gap. Jeremiah 5, 1, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see now and know and seek in the broad places thereof. If you can find a man singular, if there be any that executeth judgment that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. There are so many scriptures in the Old Testament that indicate how God consistently looked for someone. His eyes ran to and fro throughout the whole earth for someone who was walking upright before him so that he could show himself alive to them. God is still looking for those someones who will be bold to stand up and represent the truth. Will you please be that someone? Now I've got to stop. But on this next page, like I said, the heart of an intercessor, if you look at these verses, read over these verses for yourselves and, and, and really begin to try to capture this. But I'm, I'm just suggesting to you, please hear this. God does not want to judge people. When judgment and pronouncement comes today, I'm here to tell you, God is still looking for someone that will stand in. Listen, there's some judgment that cannot be stopped, so don't misunderstand me. You can't stop a one-world government from coming. But you can sure stop a lot of junk from happening to some people's lives. But you've got to be willing to get in the face of God in behalf of the people and willing to lay down your life. That's what true intercession really is. You stand where no one else wants to stand. It's uncomfortable. It is not glamorous. It's alone. It's you and God. It's alone. I said it's alone. I said it's alone. It's you and God. But you can change a city. You can change a family. You can change a nation. But you need to know your covenant. Because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is eternal. It's a spiritual, powerful container in the lips of people's hearts. In the lips of people, rather, whose hearts are filled with faith. I pray that you use these students, Father, mightily, mightily in every pursuit that you lead them into in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to obtain more teaching material by Rod Anderson, please visit www.prayerforthenations.com or call us or write to us using the contact details on your CD or cassette case.